We have been in this last month uh, during the Advent season um, in conversation about the contrast or the differences between the Caesars of Christmas uh, and uh, the Christ of Christmas, the, the tension of those things. And um, often, you know, as we, as we work through an Advent series, the goal is to kind of get us to Christmas and, and, and think through that. But I thought I'd like to kind of take it one more week Darren mentioned we're going to be uh, turning back uh, to our study in Ephesians here in a couple weeks. Uh, but I, I, I thought it was important for us um, to, to, to think about this uh, topic because if all, if all, if all we, we do is get kind of pushed back to the culture heading into Christmas, uh, but then everything goes back to normal after Christmas, then the Caesars of Christmas have won. If, there's, if, 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 the, if the Christ of Christmas isn't incarnate in the everyday, normal, ordinary, then the Caesars of Christmas will become our default. Even though they're not Christmas, we will, we will slide back into the same old, same old. If Christ's coming doesn't give us a new normal, then all has been lost. If the incarnation doesn't matter on Monday morning, then it doesn't matter whose song we sing on Sunday morning. So I thought it would be good, especially as we head into the New Year celebrations and so on, to start to think about what difference it might make if we would start to train our thinking away from partying towards celebrating. The Caesars of Christmas are good at parties. The Christ of Christmas is good at celebration. And I want to try and play with that a little bit with you this morning and, and uh, think about this in terms of um, the idea that celebration is fundamental to the, to the life we live under God. And, and I'd like you to look with me at a passage from the Old Testament. We don't spend a lot of time there. It's foundational. It's seed for the rest of what we normally do. But if you've got a Bible, turn uh, to Deuteronomy 14. If you don't, we have a few around the edges uh, on, on either side, and you can feel free to pick one up uh, and, and make use of that if you'd care to. Um, Deuteronomy 14. If you don't have a Bible if you, uh, and, and you want to take one home, you're sure welcome to use one of these and take it, take it with you. So uh, I'm going to set the frame of this in a minute, but just to, to kind of get us into the conversation, Deuteronomy chapter 14, and we'll begin at verse 22. He says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year and eat the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your olive oil, the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as the dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Now, if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord but cannot, cannot carry your tithe because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take that silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose and then use that silver to buy whatever you want cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, anything you wish. And then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. 
And don't neglect the Levites living in your towns. They have no other allotment or inheritance of their own. So I want to set this back up, if, if we can go back to the first one. Thanks, uh, Billy. This is um, Deuteronomy. It is the, the, if you know the story at all, the children of Israel have been released from um, uh, captivity in Egypt. They were there for about 400 years. They were released in, as God heard their cries for deliverance and then spent the next uh, 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. It's a whole lot easier to get a people out of Egypt than it is to get Egypt out of people. And it took 40 years for that to occur so that when they were, are now preparing to go into the land that God wanted to give them to an identity that he wanted to provide them, he uses Moses in this book, the book of Deuteronomy, to rehearse their identity. So the first part of the chapter is a reminder of who they are, or the first part of the book, rather, is a reminder of who they are. It's a repeating of the tables of covenant. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, we see the second story of the Ten Commandments. And, and then it's an unpacking of the sacrifices and the various uh, uh, identifying marks of what it will mean for them to be God's people. And then we get to this interesting little place that I think is fascinating and and talks to us about the difference uh, that God wants as his people move into celebration. He says, first of all, be sure to set aside a tenth of all your fields produce each year. Now, this is a very common practice, and we've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again because it's an important part of what it means for us to be the people of God even here and now. The, the purpose of the tithe, more or less, was, was to contribute to the support of those whose job it was, to contribute to the systems whose function it was to keep people focused on who they were and why they were here. God doesn't need your money, but he wants you to take some of his money that he has given you and use it to remind you whose you are and who you are and why you're here. That's why we gather together. So, so a, a part of the function of that tithe, it's one of the reasons why we take up an offering on Sunday morning and ask you to do very basically the same thing, is because God knows it's important that we have a regular opportunity to be reminded who we are and that it's worth paying for. It's worth paying somebody to keep us focused on what's important. Does that, does that make sense? That's what the tithe fundamentally is. But, he says, just so you don't think that I need your money, I want you at least one time a year to take that tithe that would normally be brought to the temple, normally be brought to the church. I want you to take that tithe and I want you to spend it on yourself. I want you to take, take that, 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 that cattle or that, that lamb or that wheat or that barley or whatever it is, and, and I want you to, to enjoy the provision that I have given you. I want you to know, I don't need your stuff, but I'm very happy for you to enjoy my stuff that I give you. And I want you to do this with me. I want you to celebrate my provision with me. Now, 
In Deuteronomy, as I mentioned, they're preparing to go into the promised land. As they have been traveling through the desert, through the wilderness for the last 40 years, God has been traveling with them, symbolized by this Ark of the Covenant, this box. God doesn't live in the box. He lives around the box, right? And this is going to get them into trouble later on. But right now, this symbolizes God's presence. So it's a place of worship. It's a place of prayer. It's a, in, it kept in the tent of meeting, a place where we will encounter God. But when we get into the promised land, you all are going to spread out. We won't be a, a, a community as gathered as tightly as we are now. You're going to be spread out all over the great land that I give you. And I'm going to choose a city in which I will place my name, on which I will set my name. And it's that city that I want you now to come to as part of your regular worship. Okay? Um, and as it turns out, that city became Jerusalem. And so people would have to travel 125, 130 miles on a regular basis to come to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the provision of the Lord. And notice how, how he sets this up. I'm aware, I'm paraphrasing here, I'm aware that when you come to the land, for some of you, this is going to be too far to bring your cow. It's going to be too far to bring the lamb. It's going to be too far to carry the bushels, baskets of wheat that I have provided you and blessed you with because I plan to bless you. And, and it's going to be too much work for you to bring all of that stuff to Jerusalem. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to sell it and get as much as you can for it. And then take the money that you get from that tithe once a year. Under normal circumstances, the tithe goes into the support of the community and so on. But once a year, I want you to take that tithe. I want sell it, convert it to silver, and then come to the big city. And then I want you to buy whatever you want. I want you to get the best steaks you can get. I want you to get the best lamb chops that you can get. I want you to go to George's and get the souvlaki. The, oh, let's just have a moment. Okay. So you go, you go, I go there, and I, and I want you to notice what he also says here. Um, go, go into this next one, uh, Billy. Sorry, thanks for that. Uh, so use the silver and buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, or other fermented drinks. This is... This is um, uh, the Hebrew in behind there is referring to two different times of alcoholic beverage. One, wine, uh, typically beer and wine, and then the fermented drink is alcohol. And God says, once a year at least, I want you to take your, the tithe that you would normally give to the church because you're going to do that the rest of the time, but at least once a year, I want you to remind yourself, I don't need your money, and I want you to enjoy your life. So I want you to buy beer and wine. And if you want to buy hard alcohol, buy that and have a good time. Now, here's the problem. As soon as I say that, our minds go immediately to party, not celebration. And I want to talk about the distinction between those. But I want you to understand that God is not opposed to you. This is a Messiah who converted between 120 and 180 gallons of water to the best wine that that populated city of 60 people 
had ever experienced. Do the math. That's between two and three gallons of the best wine they had ever had per person. So he is not opposed to you enjoying the fruit of your work. Everybody okay? How many are trying to figure out how I'm going to fix this now? What are you going to do? 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 All right. Here's the deal. Um, so, so when you do that, and then, then he says, don't forget your pastors either because they don't have a place. That's the Levites. So Darren and Alex get invited to the, to the party and so on and so forth. Here's, here's, here's what happens. Our culture knows how to party, but it doesn't know how to celebrate. So that alcohol and good food and good friends and good times become about an end in themselves or a way of hiding without it becoming a way of celebrating the goodness and graciousness of the Lord. Because that's the condition, right? Eat this in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Billy, if you can go back up one more, right in the middle of the slide, notice what it says, so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. This is a fundamental difference between partying, which is about hiding, and celebrating, which is about being fully present to the gracious gifts of God and to His presence with you in the celebration. You with me? So I want to talk a little bit about that because we do live in a culture and one of partying, a culture that desperately wants to celebrate but doesn't know how. The Caesars of Christmas have taught us how to party. The Christ of Christmas enables us to celebrate. Okay? So again, what ends up happening in our culture is that instead of celebration, we are so starved for life that we re-adrenalinize ourselves time after time after time after time and don't realize that we're missing the point. When it comes down to it, life is not about what you or I create. Life is what we celebrate and receive as gift from God. And out of that celebrated life comes what we do as a response. As a result of the party versus the celebration, we end up recreated not recreate. We end up exhausted, not energized. Have you ever found yourself wanting to get back to work so you could rest? You probably have been versed in the culture of party, not the culture of celebration. Because the purpose of celebration is to bring us into the rhythm of God's gracious provision. And I want to put this in, a, in, in place. Um, Darren and I have regularly gone back and forth uh, with you on this, so I, I just want to rehearse this. We are built for a certain rhythm in the universe. Uh, if, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, you see evening and morning, day 1, evening and morning, day 2, and so on and so forth. Please notice again, not morning and evening, not day and then night, first night, 
then day, the first thing you do every day is rest. And then you wake up and, and join in a program already in progress. Nothing substantial happens when you show up. You get to partner with God in what he's already doing out of the rest that he has given you as foundation for that. Does that make sense? Then one day in seven, full stop, in which you recalibrate your soul to the things that matter the most, that you are not a slave, you are not an animal, you have been created and you have been redeemed, and Sabbath is that one full stop that restores the rest that then enables us to move out into the work in progress the next day. So we have a 24-hour cycle that begins with rest and moves to work. We have a seven-day cycle that begins with rest and moves to work. We have the monthly cycle that organizes all of the things following the patterns of the moon. And then three times in the Old Testament, we um, set aside three or four or five days to celebrate. We celebrate when we plant the harvest. We celebrate when we harvest. And we celebrate the provision of God in the fall when, that he has preserved us and, and set us in place. Not so that he will, but because he has. We're not trying to twist God's arm by our sacrifices. We have already received from God, so our sacrifices are offered to Him with thanksgiving for what He has already done. We're not trying to talk Him into doing anything. You don't have to talk God into being good. He is good. You see? So that rhythm invites us on an occasional basis, not all the time, not as, not as a, a, a regular pattern, but on an occasional basis to, to step out of the rhythm of the 24-7-30 into a, a, an occasional cycle of just flat-out celebration. And he's, he's, he thinks this is important enough that he wants you to take at one time, the tithe that would normally belong in the temple and use it for that purpose. Isn't this a good God? Who else thought of this, right? It, it, this is amazing to me. And, and, and how many of you are hearing this, by the way, for the first time? This is the craziest thing you've ever heard from them. But, but does it make sense to you? Do you see what he's doing? Now, Clancy, you're looking at me like you're not quite sure and that if I'd included coffee, you would have been better. But anyway, we'll get, we'll get to that in a minute. Here's what, here's, here's what we push back against when we truly celebrate. We push back against one of the primary sins of our culture, which is sloth. Remember we did this a few years ago? We talked about the seven deadly sins, one of which is sloth, which I really believe is the, is the, is the primary temptation, the primary sin, if you will, of the, of the postmodern culture, the sin of whatever, the sin of never mind. The sin of, I don't really care. The sin of apathy that, that is passionless and careless living. This flat line of emotional death. Celebration pushes back against that. It pushes back against self-definition by work. That is that I am valuable because of what I produce. No, 
what you produce is valuable because you are. It is the work of your hands. You, as the image of God, are his creative agent in the world. That's why that's valuable. You make it valuable. So you don't look to your work to provide value for you or meaning for you. You bring meaning and value to the work you do. You feel the shift there? And celebration says, I'm important, therefore what I do is important, not the other way around. Okay? But then it also pushes back against uh, perfectionism. My name is Bill. I'm a perfectionist. Nobody been in AA lately? <laughs> any, any other perfection, recovering perfectionists among us? Here's how celebration helps us with this, if you will. Um, with perfectionism, and, and you see this in, in a number of different ways, we have to get it right. We have to get it finished before we can enjoy it. Here's the problem. Perfectionism is a moving target. It's never good enough. It's never finished enough. The house is never clean enough. The meal is never quite good enough. And so on and so forth, right? So that when we do have people over, we who are perfectionists can't really enjoy the people who have come over. Why? Because the house isn't clean enough. Memo to self, they didn't come to visit your house. They came to visit you in all of your perfect imperfection. Right? They don't care. So why do you? Because your house is not you. Everybody okay? This is important to us. And, and celebration says, this isn't about getting it right. This is about mess. This is about chaos. This is about um, being silly and being irresponsible every once in a while. It's okay. Why? Because we perfectionists believe that the world depends on our getting it perfectly right every time. No. It doesn't. It just doesn't. It just doesn't. In fact, one of the things that celebration teaches us is ad lib. Make it up as you go along. You'll be fine. Most people won't notice. If you can't get all the notes exactly right, call it jazz. Okay. <laughs> the other thing that... <laughs> everybody doing okay? So the other thing that celebration does, though, is push back against the false religion that carries shame. Uh, as you see, the, the, the difference between guilt and shame, guilt is for something you have done. Shame takes that guilt for what you have done and transfers it to you as a person. So I can now be forgiven for what I did, but I still carry the shame of who I am. Celebration pushes back against that guilt and that shame. And especially for those of us, myself particularly, and, and, and I'm, maybe some others of you who are raised in a church community, a cultural community that defined holiness by certain cultural standards that made pleasure a problem. We couldn't enjoy too much. We couldn't 
laugh too loud. I can still remember sometime laugh, sitting, kind of sitting, sitting at table with friends and family, and it's one of those moments where, where you, you, you just get caught up in it and milk comes out your nose. Anybody? No? Okay. So, and, 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 and I can remember a look from one of the older members of our congregation at the time, because I was just a kid. And the, and the look said to me, you've crossed the line. That's just too much. That's just too silly. And God is saying to us, it's okay. There is no line. We're fine. It's okay. Every once in a while, just to be irresponsible and silly. The world does not go around you. It's all right. And, and, and in, in that, especially because we, we, have, we, 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 we have made our standards of personal holiness, the standards by which we evaluate others. I had a conversation with somebody a week and a half or so ago who was, uh, uh, was, was uh, just, just horrified because their son, who has gone away um, to, uh, to, uh, to, to the military, uh, uh, has gotten a tattoo. I know. And, and they wanted to know how they should deal with this walk on the wild side. How, how, can, we, how can we protect his younger sister? From, and, 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 and the original question was, would it be wise for us to tell him not to come home for Christmas? Now, where does that come from? Where do those rules come from? They come from sheer, abject terror that if we don't get it right, God's going to be angry and then who knows what's going to happen because he's already mildly ticked most of the time. Really? Is this the God you serve? You need a new God. That's the Caesar of Christmas, not the Christ of Christmas, whose birth was announced with great joy. Celebration pushes back against the rigidity of rule-keeping Pharisaism and helps us learn to live with passion. The other thing that happens, I think, is that we have undervalued pleasure. We're afraid of it. And it, and, and it, and it can be seducing. It can be seductive. It can pull us off. In fact, Paul is very aware of this. He says that there are some people who have so fallen in love with pleasure that that's all they do. They pursue it with greed. The problem is not pleasure. The problem is the pursuit of it. You don't make it the target. But as you're pursuing God in Christ, He has no problem with you enjoying the benefits of His good creation. Whether it's food or good drink or good friends or good conversation or laugh out loud, roll on the ground, good times. There's no problem with that. Don't make that the goal because sooner or later it's a law of diminishing returns. It's byproduct. But pleasure's not the problem. He invented it. 
You, you with me? And celebration says, bring it on. You see? So, so when, we, when we work in this, a couple of key things that we want to push into this. First of all, this is before the Lord. You'll notice this. So that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. And then the next slide, it says the same, same idea, the idea of, of doing this before the Lord. So this is, you, you, if you, invite Jesus to the party. Because when you do, he'll teach you how to turn your party into a celebration. He did that over and over and over. No wonder people wanted him to come to their party, right? People loved it when Jesus showed up because instantly the thing that they were longing for and not able to achieve because all they knew was partying became possible because the Christ of Christmas had become present to them and they could celebrate. Do you see? This is why in the Gospel of Luke particularly, every time we see Jesus, he's at lunch with somebody, he's going to lunch with somebody, he's just come back from lunch with somebody. He loves to eat with people. In fact, there's even a story in Luke chapter 19 where he hauls a guy down out of a tree so he can go to coffee with him. I love that story. I love that Messiah. That's somebody I can get behind. That's celebration. So before the Lord is a critical component of this. The second thing we need to recognize, this isn't lifestyle. It's occasional. This sets the frame for how we live with responsibility the rest of the time. But if we're not very careful, we will start to think that it is our responsibility that makes the world go round. No, it's God's grace and goodness that makes the world go round. We partner with him in faithful stewardship and live responsible lives of moderation the rest of the time. But every once in a while, we just need to be reminded that it's not about us at all, ever. You with me? Then it becomes a, 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 an important pushback against the narcissism of our culture. It's genuine enjoyment. Uh, leads to contentment. So we're, we're in, that, in that category. I need to say something else about this. Um, and because and some of you were trying to figure out what I was going to do with the uh, wine and alcohol there. Uh, and, 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 the, and, and I, I, I got to say this, and, and I can't say this in a lot of the other cultures that I speak in, but I have to say it and need to say it and can say it here. We've got to work out our relationship with alcohol. It's fine for, for, for the so-called hipster church to have beer and Bible study. Uh, no problem. But if you have not worked out a relationship with alcohol that does not result in intoxication, you have no business leading people in places where they have no capacity to go. You with me? And again, it's not the beer's problem. It's not the alcohol. That's not the problem. We're the problem. So if we're going to do one, we have to do the other. Otherwise, we will migrate to partying as a way of self-loss, not celebration. Do, do you, you with me? This is, this is a, 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 a critical component. All the way through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, public drunkenness, intoxication, private or public, 
is frowned on. This is not what he's after here. But he recognizes that in, in responsible, careful, uh, deliberate celebration, this is part of the party, part of the celebration. And again, this is a Messiah who made 20 to 30 gallons, two to three gallons rather, of wine for each person in that little city of Cana. So he knows something about wine. And, and can we just dismiss once and for all that the wine that we're talking about in the Old Testament didn't have alcohol in it? Please, can we, not, can we just not go there? Of course it did. That's why they used it. And so, but, but if you have not, and, and if you have not worked out your relationship with alcohol to include the lordship of Jesus Christ, do that. It's critical, especially as we head into a season of intoxication in the next two or three days. It's tragic because the Roman god Bacchus is closely related to the Roman god. Aphrodite, Diana. Alcohol leads in many, many cases in the Old and New Testament to sex and irresponsible. In in working with the people group I work with at the university, it's not uncommon for kids who have messed up sexually to have had alcohol involved. It's not your friend. So figure it out. How? Ask Jesus how he would do it if he were you. He gets you. He gets your your OCD. He gets your stuff. Let him teach you. And including, some of you may come to the conclusion, I just can't ever drink alcoholic beverage. That's that's fine. Nothing wrong. And others will have a different different outcome on that. And I don't I don't want to drill this home, but I know in, in our community, especially in the communities that you and I circulate in especially those of you who are in college, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And here's the remedy. Celebration, not party. So we're invited into this. Celebration results in our becoming fully alive. It invites us into the rebirth of wonder. It opens us up to delight. It gives us a a lifting of our lives. It restores and recreates and refreshes us. We learn how to live carefree. That's how you're built to live, right? Cast all your cares on me. Well, what do I do with them? Then you live carefree. That's how we're built to live. That's what celebration enables. It enables us to let go of our reputations, of what people think of us. Character, that's your business. Pay attention to character. Reputation, you have no control over anyway. So pay attention to the center. Let God take care of your reputation, including sometimes that you can be pretty silly. Is that okay? Not so much. Okay, well then. Well, Lalo, you can be. <laughs> so, so as we as we sit with this, the other thing, please notice here. Um, it, it, it go, I'm sorry, Billy. You, yeah. Next one. Notice here. Um, you and your household eat there. This is about community. This is about 
Um, this, is a, this, this is about household. This is about family and friends who have become family. So it invites us into this and pushes back against the individualistic culture. It teaches us about God, that he is good. It teaches us about God, that joy and pleasure come from him, that he's not a dreary God. Now, you wouldn't always know that from some of his kids. I want to be a child of God who celebrates the pure, sheer gift of joy that comes from the Christ of Christmas. Don't you? Our world needs it, desperately needs it. Otherwise, they're just stuck with partying, which is ultimately self-destructive, not recreative, wreck. So invite Jesus into the celebration. Let him teach you how to do this. Let him learn you. And then you learn you from him. Lord Jesus, I thank you for the chance that we have to celebrate the grace and goodness and mercy that redefine and reshape our entire lives. I pray, O oh Lord, that as in a few moments we head out into a world that is set to party, you would help us to be ambassadors of celebration. That in our pushback to the Caesars of Christmas, we who are followers of the Christ of Christmas would celebrate and invite them to join us in that. Teach us how to do it, Lord. And for those particularly who are struggling with some of the implications of what we said in terms of alcohol, I pray that specifically you would help them in this. Help them to learn into who they are in this avenue. In Jesus' name.